would say you are welcome here in this place. Lord Jesus, you are welcome here in this place. Let's say that together, church. Lord Jesus, you are welcome here in this place. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here in this place. Heavenly Father, you are welcome here in this place. Amen. Thank you, guys. So good. Man, that's the way I want to bring in the new year, worshiping. Good morning. Praise Jesus. I want to look into the camera and say good morning to all of you all who are joining us online. Good morning to all of you all who are in the room. I'm in John 1. If you'll take your Bible or your phone or wherever you're looking, I'm going to take you there this morning. As we look at John 1 this morning, I want you to um, go with me to the year 100 A.D., or C.E., if you prefer. I want you to go with me to a little city, uh, which really, for its day, was not a little city. It was one of the biggest cities um, in what would become the Roman Empire, but it was a Greek city called Ephesus. It's situated near modern-day Izmir, and in this little uh, city of Ephesus, there was about probably 200 or 250,000 people. And the streets, like any city, would have been dusty and full of animals and dirty, and yet what was happening in this, this Greek city was sort of a, um, a locus, if you will, or a, um, a gathering of um, knowledge and education and experience, and much of the sort of Greek and then what would become Greco-Roman world is being birthed out of this. And if, you, if we walked those streets, what we would find is a huge um, coliseum or, or theater that was being built. It seats 25,000 people. You could go see it today, the, the remains of it. If we walked those streets, what was underway was a giant library that you could still go see today. What was underway was a, a temple dedicated to um, a, Gre a Greek and a Roman god, Artemis or Diana, Diana, and that was underway being built. But what was going on behind all of those things was this boom little community of Christians, and they're gathering, and they're meeting, and it's, a, it's a, about, give or take, it's 100 AD, and every single one of the original apostles is gone except one. One's left. Even the great apostle Paul has departed. He's now in the presence of King Jesus, and there's one aged old man who is left named John the Beloved, or John the Apostle. And I can't take us back there purely, but what I imagine, if you read early church fathers, Eusebius and Dionysus and even Jerome, they all talk about two early um, graves or two great Johns that were buried in the city of Ephesus. And I would actually suggest that this aged man, John the Beloved, John um, whom Jesus loved, John who laid his chest upon Jesus's breast or chest during the Last Supper, that, that as he uh, is, is coming to the end of his race, that around him is gathering a group of people. And I would actually suggest that one of those was a guy named John the Elder, who was different than John the Apostle. And John the Apostle is at the very end of his race. And I think John the Elder, this is my conjecture, but I think John the Elder picked up pen and papyrus. And there was a group of people that began to gather around John the Beloved. And they began to say, tell us the stories of our King Jesus. 
tell us the story of how he walked the earth. And in those final hours and days before John uh, went to be with King Jesus in all glory, before he passed through the shroud into eternity, I imagine him actually unfolding and unfurling all that he could recollect about the walk and the relationship he had with the Lord Jesus. And I imagine that as they sat there, what happened is you have John, so the stories are beginning to emanate out of John. And I can just imagine them actually sitting there saying, Jesus said, and they would recite what Jesus said, and do you remember when Jesus said? And then John saying something like, but now after all these years, we know what he meant. And there was a group of people gathered around John who would have revered John like a father would have loved John uh, as someone who mentored them and discipled them and walked with them. They would have revered him even like a saint. And here they were in the final hours of his life, the final days of his life, and the gospel of John is written down. I love it because the Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels written. And if you look at it, the other Gospels are far more um, concrete and practical, even with dates and geographical locations. But what John begins to capture in in this Gospel, and it's probably my favorite, although I love them all, but what he begins to capture is... Uh, the, the reminiscence, if you will, of 70 years. Jesus would have been born probably um, three, maybe, um, B.C., and then Jesus would have been crucified, resurrected, and ascended about 30 or 31 A.D., and so now 70 years later, John's writing down this gospel. And so what's absolutely a man unfurls this, what's happening is it's not just Jesus said, but it's actually this is what Jesus meant. And as he captured it and he shares it with this group of people that are gathered around him, the church in Ephesus, and they write it down, it's actually the gospel of John as told by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is now enlivened John, and John's had 70 years to reflect upon what King Jesus said, what he did, how he walked upon the earth. And I can just imagine this fatherly, gracious, kind, gentle old man sitting there talking about the love of Jesus. And this little small group or small band of people, men, women, potentially all gathered around, and the Gospel of John is written. I want to take a look this morning, which we already are beginning to, at the circumstances in which John was written. I want to take a look at who actually penned it, which is probably John the Elder. I just mentioned that. I want to take a, a, a look at um, the person of John, uh, who, who John the Beloved, John the Apostle was as a man. And then I want to take a look at the great problem that John and the church in Ephesus was actually facing. Why was this gospel even written down? And then I want to tie it back with um, why did he begin the way he began? In the beginning was the word. And then I want to take a look at the goal of the gospel of John with some significant um, practical application. Sound good? All right, let's read. John 1. In fact, let's do something different today. Let's read this together and let's have you all stand to your feet. I'm just going to read a couple verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, 
and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts and minds this morning with your word? Would you change us, O God? Would you fill us with your presence? Would you form Christ Jesus within us? Would you speak to us? Would you build your church in this day like you built it in 100 AD? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can sit. So by this point in history, when John penned this, uh, what was fascinating is there was probably uh, one Jewish Christian um, for every maybe 100 or 150,000 Greek Christians. So what began as a um, Jewish movement uh, has all of a sudden transitioned into this thing that is like Jewish culture, Jewish ideas, Jewish frame of reference, Jewish almost everything is gone. They don't even have any frame of reference for really the Old Testament. This is happening in this, this booming, blossoming city of Ephesus. And John is sitting there amongst uh, perhaps all of these, his friends, his brothers, the people he's led and mentored. And he's going, how do we uh, actually begin to share the good news of the gospel with a group of people who are no longer Jewish? actually reminds me of where we are today. It reminds me of sitting even in America. We're in a spot going, okay, how do we share um, lost group of people? Let's look at what John did. A couple other interesting things, I think, as we look at the city of Ephesus is uh, the Apostle Paul lived and preached in Ephesus for at least three and a half years. He traveled through it a couple of times. Uh, Timothy, if you've ever read the uh, book of Timothy, he pastored there. He was probably the first bishop of the church in Ephesus. If you remember at the foot of the cross when King Jesus was dying, he looked at John the Beloved, by the way, and all the other apostles. Anybody know where they went? gone. So John the Beloved is at the foot of the cross, and he actually says, John, behold your mother, and he dedicates Mary, his mother, to John. And it's possible, it's not for sure, but it's at least possible that Mary lived out her days with John in Ephesus, and she's buried there also. Ephesus in this day and age would have had a population of probably 250,000, which makes it bigger than the city of Wilmington, more like the greater Wilmington area maybe, if you include Leland and all the surrounding areas. I think it's fascinating because I imagine that while the Gospel of John originated in the heart and mind of actual John the Beloved, I don't think John probably had the ability to write it down, and this guy John the Elder probably was the one who actually captured it and wrote it down for him. And if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, later on in the New Testament, you actually can see he introduces himself as the elder. I would actually propose that he probably wrote those three books as well on behalf of John. Make no mistake that the book originated in the heart, mind, and experience of John the Apostle. So if we have this group of people, so we have perhaps John the elder, writing it down. We have um, a, a, an unusual set of circumstances in which this little city of Ephesus is and the Christians there are in the middle of. Then I, I, let's take a minute and let's just take a look at, at John, who he was as a man. Um, and let's even rewind the clock back because I think in order to even understand these first few words, you have to understand who John was. Okay? So 
uh, if we rewind it back just a little bit, I would actually propose to you that John was a very strange character and mixture. Probably much like you and me. The first thing I would say about John is he had a fiery temper. As a young man, John would have no doubt had a fiery temper. In fact, Jesus called him the son of thunder. That's right. He and his brother James, they called him sons of thunder. So he, that was not because they were sweet or had a nice bedside manner. So if you're in here and you've got a bit of a fiery temper, I've got good news for you. Jesus can take you and mold you and make you and shape you and form you. We'll look at how John ends in just a minute. I would also say to you that John, as a young man, had supreme ambition. I would say he was a turbulent man. He was an ambitious man. He was a young man, and he sent his mom in to ask if he could have the number one seat in heaven. It's in there. Was that his mom's idea? Was that his idea? I have no, I have no way of knowing. We can't know. But I, I think he was a turbulent man with supreme ambition. He wanted to sit at the very right hand of God in heaven. I would actually propose to you that John was also an intolerant man. He went to a city in Samaria early on when he was following the Lord Jesus, and instead of them being hospitable and kind, they were unhospitable and they were unkind, and John walked out, and you know what he asked Jesus? Can I call down fire on that city and burn it alive? What a man. Can I call down the city and burn them all alive? Like, drink that down, just a minute. Intolerant man, angry man, supremely ambitious man, a man with a fiery temper. And yet, if you look at the stories, not only in the Gospels, but in some of the early church literature that the early church fathers captured, he was a man of great courage. Interesting that he was the only one who stood at the cross of Christ Jesus. All the other one ran and hid, and he stood there, unafraid, courageous to the end. Maybe they'll kill me, maybe they won't, and he stood. I love that God can take someone who's ambitious and fiery and angry and intolerant, and he can use that uh, courage and that stuff that's down inside of them, and as they begin to surrender their life to the Lord Jesus, he forms them, and he shapes them, and he makes them, and he changes them. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. This is, the, this is God, King Jesus, the potter at work, and John the Beloved, the lump of clay. This is your story. This is my story. The last thing I'd want to say about John the person as we read this book is this is John who by the end was reduced to love. The early church fathers actually captured his last words, and Jerome is the one who tells it most clearly. But the believers in Ephesus all gathered around and said, what would you like to tell us? <laughs> and he said, little children love one another. And they said, isn't there more? What, what do you want to say? Surely there's something more. And he said, it is enough, for it was the words of our Lord. You know, my grandmother passed away on my dad's side um, a handful of years ago now. But she used to say at the very end, Jesus has reduced me to love. I think she had something right. She was also a fiery lady when she was young. But you have John the Beloved who is fiery, 
supremely ambitious, intolerant. He's courageous, and yet in the end, he's been reduced to love. You could argue that he was a leader among the 12. He was in Jesus's inner circle. We could even argue that he was Jesus's closest companion and friend. And am I, uh, <laughs> am I good? <laughs> uh, you could argue that he was Jesus's closest companion and friend, and that Jesus, when, when John lays his head on Jesus's chest and even identifies himself in the book of John as John the Beloved, I think John's not identifying himself as John the Beloved, but I think John the Elder is capturing the reality that this is John, the one who Jesus loved. This is John, the Beloved Apostle and Disciple. <clears throat> so let's now switch a second, and as we look at why did John begin with this uh, possibly the ultimate crescendo of like theological framework here happens in the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So before we even open that up, let's take a second and let's, let's look at the problem that John faced um, as he wrote this book from Ephesus. So I just mentioned, but there was probably uh, maybe one Jewish Christian um, for every 100 or 150,000 Greek Christians, okay? So this is no longer a Jewish movement. This is a, it, has, it has totally changed. The face of Christianity has changed, and the face of, of what it even means to follow Jesus has changed, and it requires that intelligent people reframe it. Not change the message, not change the essence. God didn't change from the beginning, Genesis, all the way to Revelation. His character is the same. It's expressed in different ways at different times. But it required that they actually reframe it. So if you went up to a Greek person and you said, um, have you ever heard Messiah? They would have looked back at you and gone, what? If you went up to any Jewish person in Israel and said, the Messiah, they would have said, Oh yeah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. They would have told you. They would have immediately unfurled who the Messiah was. And so what you have is this concept all of a sudden of how do you introduce a Jewish Messiah who became the savior of the world to a Greek and ultimately Roman population that has no concept of Jewish roots and history. So John begins to think and put this together. The only commonality at this point in history between the Greek world and the Jewish world was they had a worldview that included the word logos. In the beginning was the word. Let's do that again. In the beginning was the word. Now that word is logos. Logos. Say it with me. So the only commonality that the, the Greeks had and the Jews had was this world word logos. So let's take a second and let's look at the Jewish background on the word logos. Then we're going to look at the Greek background on the word logos. Then we're going to flip it and go, what's the goal of the whole gospel of John? And then we're going to turn it and make some application. Yeah? All right, let's do it. Okay, so Jewish background on the word logos. Um, Jews would have been very familiar with the all-powerful word of God. In the beginning, God spoke, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The, the creative power of God um, actually exists in God's word, and when God speaks, it happens. I mean, it just rolls. What's fascinating to me is if you look at um, modern science, modern science actually says that at some point, um, all of the whatever in the universe came together, and suddenly there was a big... Bang, and all of a sudden the world came to be. Well, I don't know that Christianity differs with that all that much as opposed just save who originated the bang. 
right? I mean, God spoke out of nothing. He spoke the word, the word of God. And when the word of God was spoken, it was powerful and creation happened. What's fascinating is the Greeks at this same time, so we have us in our modern viewpoint, we have the, the Greeks who have this um, acknowledgement of the word, which we're getting into, but you have the Jews who now understand the power of the spoken word of God. To the Jew, the word was, um, it was almost like a unit of energy charged with power. Like we tend to think um, almost that, uh, the, the, that the word can be, we, we can say things or we can do things and our words have little meaning. You know that little um, childhood uh, rhyme, sticks and stones can break my butt? Not so to a Jewish person. See, to a Jewish person, they grasp that in your words you have the power to um, uh, condone life or death. So to a Jewish person, they're actually grasping, in the beginning was the word, the creative, all-powerful word of God to speak. And when, uh, when, they, when God spoke, it happened. And not only would they have grasped that, they would have also grasped that when me, if I was a Jewish person, when I spoke, I have the capability of continuing to co-create with God or co-destroy. We'll come back to that. Okay, so... To the Jew, the spoken word was a unit of energy charged with power. The Old Testament is full of the creative power of the words, the word of the Old Testament. Um, there's tremendous power in the word. So in this sense, uh, the Greek concept of the word was similar to the Hebrew concept possibly of wisdom. If you read the Old Testament, some of the wisdom literature like Proverbs, uh, wisdom is personified like the Holy Spirit or like the Lord Jesus. And so you get this idea that at the beginning, uh, wisdom or the Holy Spirit or Jesus um, was a co-creator uh, and companion and intimate helper in creation. I definitely have an echo. Are y'all trying to fix that? I'm like, hey, I'm talking to myself over here. It's not good for the brain, you know? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Maybe I'm going crazy. Okay. Um, so, in, in that sense, you have God, uh, who, who is, um, in, and Jesus is really what John is introducing here. So, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was God, and he's not just saying Jesus was God, he's also saying Jesus was with God. It's even an idea of the Holy Spirit. So, some of our Trinitarian theology, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, comes in part from this passage. So Logos um, is the name that John is actually giving to Jesus before he's born. In fact, in Revelation 19.13, I'm not going to turn there, but when John pens Revelation, and who penned Revelation, by the way? John the Beloved, that's right, same guy. So, and, I'm, and remember, even though I'm suggesting to you that John the Elder wrote it down, I'm still saying that all of it originated in the heart and mind of John the Beloved, okay? It's very important. But John the Beloved, at this point in history, would have already captured the revelation. He already would have been exiled to the island of Patmos. He already would have been stuck in the salt mines, and he already would have written all this down. So, but he said it in Revelation 19.13, his, Jesus, his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him. So, okay, now let's flip it. So we've got this Jewish background a little bit. We could go so much deeper, but let's park it there. Jewish background on the word logos or the word. Now let's flip it and take a look at the Greek background on the word logos. 
So to the Greek person, um, and you've got to understand, they were religious, uh, but they, weren't, um, they, they didn't believe in one God, right? There's many gods. And so to a Greek person, um, logos meant two things. It meant the word of God and sort of the cosmic reason of God, okay? So, so they understood the word logos. And if I, let me just cite a couple things because I, um, I think it'll help you. There was actually an Ephesian philosopher um, named Heraclitus. Rick, am I right? Yes, I got it right. Heraclitus. Okay, he was telling me before on how to pronounce it. Okay, so there's an Ephesian philosopher named Heraclitus, and he held that the change and flux in the world was ordered following a continuous pattern all the time. In other words, um, that the, the, there was a controlled pattern, um, which was the word of God or the cosmic reason of God. And in all events there was a, of life, there was a purpose, a plan, and a design. And he called that Logos. Logos. So what I love about John is you can imagine John who is sitting wherever they were in Ephesus, whether it was in a house or in a gathering place, he is sitting there and in his mind he is communing with the Holy Spirit going, how do I begin to explain who you are to a Greek people who have no concept of the Messiah, who have no concept of an Old Testament, who have no concept of an all-powerful creator God that can speak and it can happen. And he goes, oh my goodness, I can use this concept of logos because the Greek people get it and the Jewish people get it. And he goes, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And all of a sudden, every Greek person who was standing there went, oh my goodness, he's suggesting that this um, cosmic reason or this cosmic power, this cosmic sort of logos is actually the one true God. And then he's going on to say that this one true God came and his name is Jesus. So what happened all of a sudden for everyone sitting there who would have uh, heard this read in that Ephesian church and even in the Greco-Roman world as things, time continued to unfold is they would have immediately grasped that what he was suggesting and saying is this sort of cosmic reason of God or this cosmic word of God was Jesus. What's interesting is there's a guy named Plato you've probably heard about. And Plato's got a theory of forms, which you may even know about. But I think it's fascinating because in, in Plato's theory of forms, what he basically says is, um, this table is real. But there is a more real table in an unseen reality, and everything that we make in the seen reality is but a dismal reflection and imitation of an unseen reality. That sounds a one, eleven one to me. Yeah? So what begins to unfold here is you have these um, non-Christian philosophers who have the fingerprints of God in their hearts and in their minds, and they're actually beginning to grasp, and they're seeing maybe through their own little glass dimly. And I'm not suggesting that Plato was a believer or any of these other people, but what I am suggesting is they're scratching the surface of what the ultimate truth of the world was. They're looking at creation and they're beholding a creator. And you have John who comes along and goes, man, we can capitalize on this. We can take what they understand and we can take what the Jews understand and we can bring this thing together and we can say, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the word and he was with God and he was God. It's so like... So when John 
declares that Jesus is the Logos. He brings the Greek, he brings the Jew together under the word, the light that enables us to see reality. He's saying Jesus is the reality that has come to earth. Let's read John 1, 9 and 10. I didn't read that far. Well, let's just read that. The true light, and I think that's better translated real. The real light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Who's the real light? Jesus. He was in the world and through, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So what John is unfolding here, and I can just imagine at the end of John's race with this group of, of men and women who were gathered around him celebrating his life, celebrating the legacy of Jesus and, and journeying in, this, in their own Jesus journey together at this time. They're writing down that in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. So let's flip it here just a minute and let's take a look at what is the goal of the gospel of John. This is where it probably begins to get practical for us. When you look at the other three gospels, the goal is to capture the, the facts, the, the dates, the times, the stories, what Jesus said. And in fact, I had the privilege of spending some time in Israel and I got to retrace the entire gospel of Mark. Like Mark is so like concrete and specific and like cities and dates and times and archaeology, like you can like, you can retrace that entire gospel. And so what, what, but what John does here is he actually takes the foundation that Mark has laid and Matthew and Luke is late, and all of a sudden he's, um, he's sort of uh, uh, zooming back to like a 30,000 or 50,000 uh, uh, foot view, and he's attempting to unpack what is all this about. So rather than capturing exactly what Jesus said, what he's trying to capture is what Jesus meant. Like the essence of what Jesus was attempting to communicate. And you can only imagine that if John is an arrogant, um, fiery-tempered, you know, whatever, we want, whatever else you want to put around him, that as a young man, he heard Jesus with his ears, but he did not fully understand and comprehend, right? It was only as John grew and aged and as um, life even, the, 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 like Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, John's learning obedience through what he suffered, I think that the Holy Spirit is in this process of illuminating inside of John. What did Jesus really mean? What was he saying? What was he trying to communicate? And John's even growing. Praise God, John didn't write it down when he was a young man. Some of you older guys need to say Amen. I think what John capture here, and, and let me say, I don't think it's just John. I actually, I'm convinced that this is the Holy Spirit through John. This is the Ephesian church with John. This is the early church fathers alongside John. This is the early church mothers alongside John. This is um, all of the apostles that had gone before him. This was, this was the entirety of heaven conspiring with John to bring into reality this uh, written word so that we could understand it. So when we open this thing up, it's like, okay, Lord Jesus, let us illuminate us, change us, let us see, let us eat of your word, let us understand it, and let us drink deeply of it. So when we read through John, as we read through John, and we look at the wonderful works of Jesus, they're not just wonderful works, or as we look at even the wonderful words of Jesus, they're not just wonderful words. Rather, I want you almost to begin to think of the wonderful works and wonderful words as doorways into the kingdom of God. 
So what it becomes is not just a doorway into the kingdom of God, but it becomes a doorway through which you can walk to access that larger reality. You follow me? In other words, God didn't intend that we live simply here with no understanding of this future reality. John and these early church uh, people that wrote this down are attempting to open doorways so that we can understand the larger reality of the kingdom of God and then participate with him in bringing that kingdom here to earth. You follow me? So what he's opening here as we read these words in John are these huge doorways through which we can walk to access the kingdom. That's what I want to be about. Accessing the doorways through which I can know and understand King Jesus and experience his infilling presence and power in our lives. I think that's the kind of church I want to be a part of too. Yeah? So let's flip this and let's make some application here. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John brings together the Greek, he brings together the Jew, but then there's another truth that's in all this. There's the truth of your words and my words. So let me ask, do your words matter? I think one of the things that John is proposing in this, and you see it at different places throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, is that we can become um, co-creators with God in bringing the life of heaven into the here and now. Or you can become co-creators with the enemy into bringing the death and destruction of him into the here and now. Remember when... Simon Peter came to Jesus and said, you don't have to go to the cross and die. And Jesus turned around and he said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Jesus showed up to your house and looked at you in dead in the eyes and said, get behind me, Satan? I'm mean, like, go there a second. What a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan? Like, Here's what I'm, I am saying to you is I believe that we have in our words the capability and the possibility of being co-creators with God in our right thinking and our right believing and pulling the larger kingdom will and way from that unseen reality into our seen reality. Now, what I am not saying is you can walk around and sort of name things and claim things and speak things and it happens. But there is some truth to speaking things by faith. When I sit with couples in marriage counseling situations, I will often encourage one or both of them, if they're in a real crisis, to get a little notebook um, and on the counter in the morning, uh, write. And I often encourage them to pick one thing every morning that they're grateful for or that they love. And to make a note of it. That's something Abby and I have done in our marriage. I make coffee in the morning and at points I'll, I have a little notebook and I'll just tell her something I love about her. But what you're doing in that moment is you're actually co-creating with him and you're grabbing kingdom will and way and bringing it into your reality. In other words, what you focus on and what you feed and what you breathe the will and way of God upon, guess what happens? 
It grows. So it, it, this is this, it's a, it is a supernatural act of, of participating with him in uh, bringing those things into a seen reality. Do what we speak to our neighbors matter? Yes. yes. Does what we speak to our kids matter? Now, let's, let's pause here just a second, because some of you are gonna already going, oh my gosh, I've wrecked so-and-so's life. <laughs> and let me say, you may have. <laughs> just dead serious. And you may need to repent. Really? And guess what? Jesus paid all this on the cross, and repentance is the simplest, most crazy thing I've ever seen. In my- you go, Lord Jesus, what I have said did not participate with you. It actually participated with the enemy, and it brought death. Would you forgive me? That's it. Would you forgive me? You bring it to the cross. And then you go to that person, and you go, Connie, what I said to you brought death and harm, and hurt, and I want to ask your forgiveness. I was wrong, and I didn't represent Jesus well. Now, what have you done? You have applied the blood of King Jesus, the finished work of the cross, into that situation. You have participated with him in bringing his kingdom, will, and way into that relationship. You can do this with roommates. You can do this with people at work. You can do this with next-door neighbors. You can do this with spouses. And guess what? We practice it regularly at our house. Come on. Michael is a saint, right? I am a saint created in the image of God. And guess what? Some days I'm pulling this ugly reality out and I got to go back and go, babe, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I have to reappropriate my sainthood. There are people who uh, want to, I, I think of it like a, a parked car. There's, there's theologians who want to park their car sort of in, I'm a sinner that is saved by grace and therefore I become a saint. There's other theologians who go, oh no, no, I'm a saint and I still have the capability to sin. <clears throat> I would much rather park my car in the saint slot. Okay? But that doesn't mean we don't take authentic responsibility when we fall into whatever manner of ugliness and foolishness and go back to the person and go, I was wrong. This is the finished work of the gospel. This is not condemnation. This is, uh, you do sort of belly up to the bar and take responsibility for what you've done or failed to do, but I want you to live it out in light of the cross. Take it to the cross, and once it's separated and done at the cross, it is separated from you. It is finished. It is separated as far as the east is from the west, and you are free as if you never sinned. It's so too good to be true. It's like, oh my goodness. And then you can go to the person, even if you have decades of hurt with your kids or grandkids or spouse, or you fill in the blank, you can go to them and you can go, I was wrong. And you can apply the blood of Christ Jesus and begin to co-create with him his kingdom will and way in that situation. It's so powerful. You can get this. It changes absolutely everything. Now, go back to my situation with Connie. What if Connie responds poorly? Is that my problem? It's not my responsibility. I have done everything I do. I have repented before God. I've gone back to Connie. If Connie responds poorly, Connie, I love you. I'm sorry. But here's what happens, is you have gotten your garbage out of the way. You hear me? You've gotten your stuff out of the way so that King Jesus can actually begin to access and work in her heart and in her life. Some of you probably have some garbage to clean up. Did he just say that? Grace upon grace upon grace. Because at the foot of the cross, we find grace 
We find truth. We find peace. And this is John, the beloved, the arrogant, fiery, vehement, whatever he was, man at the beginning, who was this gentle, loving man by the end. And he is fully reduced to love. Little children love one another. As we move into communion, and Stacy and Rick, maybe you guys will come back up. I want to say so clearly as we study John, the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, you will, as you leave from this place, either co create the kingdom and will and way of God in your words or you will co-create with the enemy and bring his kingdom will and way. You can't do both. It's a little scary, isn't it? And yet this is what the Christian journey and the Christian life is all about.